So I'm going to read Leviticus 11, 1 to 25. We're looking at Leviticus 11 to 14. Um, I'm not going to be able to go through it in detail because that would take hours. I'm up for it. <laughs> Leviticus 11, 1 to 25. And then I'm going to read verses 43 to 45. Thank you very much. And then we'll jump to 1 John. All right. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, Of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It's ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It's unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It's unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It's unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They're unclean for you. Of all the living creatures living in the water, all the living creatures living, sorry, all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales. But all creatures in the seas or streams that do not have fins and scales, whether among all the swarming things or among all the other living creatures in the water, you are to regard as unclean. And since you are to regard them as unclean, you must not eat their meat. You must regard their carcasses as unclean. Anything living in the water that does not have fins and scales is to be regarded as unclean by you. These are the birds you are to regard as unclean and not eat because they're unclean. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, any kind of black kite, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the cormorant, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, the osprey, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopoe and the bat. All flying insects that walk on all fours are to be regarded as unclean by you. There are, however, some flying insects that walk on all fours that you may eat. Those that have jointed legs for hopping on the ground, of these you may eat any kind of locust, catered, cricket or grasshopper. But all other flying insects that have four legs you are to regard as unclean. You'll make yourselves unclean by these. Whoever touches their carcasses will be unclean till evening. Whoever picks up one of their carcasses must wash their clothes and they'll be unclean till evening. Verse 43. Do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Do not make yourselves unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves about on the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore be holy because I am holy. 1 John, chapter 1. 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which is with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. 
We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Just before I pray, before the sermon, I'm going to remind parents, if your child is in creche or preschool, please keep your phone handy in case there's a call for some reason. I'm going to pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you for your word to us in Leviticus. Lord, we thank you also for Jesus, who died and rose again, who fulfilled the Old Testament laws. Lord, we thank you that we can have a new life in him, that we're made, new, we're made clean and holy through his work and the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that you help us to understand this passage now, because it's old and it's foreign to our eyes. Help us to understand how it applies to us. And then, Lord, move us to want to live for you all the more in response to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Keep your Bibles open at Leviticus 11. If you're still in 1 John, flick back. So I'm going to skate over it a little bit quickly because there's a lot in there, obviously. All right. So I, th- I know what you think. I think it's easy to find, to think that the book of Leviticus is a bit irrelevant because it's so old and because it's so foreign to our eyes all these laws and things. For example, in one of the chapters we're studying today, chapter 13, we're told that you have persistent mould in your house, you need to demolish your whole house and take it out of the city rather than just pop down to Woolies or Coles and get some exit mould and sort it out, which is what you'd probably actually do rather than demolish your whole house. Um, Although, I wonder if any of you have done a bit of a rebuild of your bathrooms because it just got to that point where you just couldn't clean it anymore the way you like, so you can just rip it out and start again. Well, today we're learning what it meant in the ancient world to be clean and unclean and what it means to us today as Christians, this whole idea of clean and unclean. But before we dive into Leviticus, I want to suggest that the concept of clean and unclean is not as ancient and foreign as we might think. For example, this is a quick quiz. I'm looking for some audience participation here. This is not rhetorical. Now, when someone's done something wrong and they decide to admit it, they're said to do what? To come, they come clean, right? Now, um, when a drug addict finally gets off the drugs, they will say that they've been what? Clean for six months or 12 months. Clean for a year, they might say. Okay, off the drugs means clean. Interesting. Um, what about this? Might be a bit more of an older generational thing. But back in the day, movies that had a lot of sex scenes in them were referred to as what kind of movies? Yeah? Not clean, but dirty movies, right? And magazines the same. Um, 
dirty magazine. So you can have a brand new, never been touched, still in a plastic pornographic magazine sitting on the shelf and we'll call it dirty. We refer to it as a dirty magazine. All right. Now I've got your attention. Let's uh, start thinking about Leviticus and how this applies to the text and to us. In order to understand any part of the Bible, you must understand the context for that passage. So every week we're doing a little kind of context reminder of the passage from last week's sermon. And the immediate context for our true story from God's Word today is the appalling desecration of the most holy of holies, the dwelling place of God, which Dan talked about last week. Nadab and Abihu went into the most holy place in the tent of meeting, the dwelling place of God, in an inappropriate and unsanctioned manner, and they were struck dead by God, and there their dead bodies lay. Now, we need to understand and feel the shocking collision of worlds when death is in the presence of the life giver. God is a giver of life. There's nothing more separate from him, more unholy than death. But here death lays in the most holy of holies in the base of the Ark of the Covenant. And the bodies are, the bodies are removed and it turns out that their family, Aaron and his sons, his other two sons, aren't permitted to mourn their deaths because they must stay there in the holy place because they've been made holy and clean for the holy place. So the dead bodies are removed because death cannot come into contact with the giver of life. It, it can't happen. So it's no wonder then, if that's the context, it's no wonder the very next step we take in Leviticus is to launch into five chapters detailing the process for how to make something that's unclean, clean again. So chapters 11 to 15 are all about making what's unclean, clean. Then we have the Day of Atonement, which is the great day in Israel where the sins of Israel are forgiven once a year, once for all. And then we jump into 17 to 24, eight chapters about how to make what is unholy, holy. So how to make clean, unclean, the Day of Atonement, and how to make what's unholy, holy. Holy means set apart for God's special purposes and pleasure. I think we think holy means pure and clean, but it doesn't. Something needs to be pure and clean to be holy, but holy means set apart for God's good purposes and pleasure. For example, your toothbrush is holy. Put your hand up if you share your toothbrush with someone else. Nobody, right? Because your toothbrush is holy. It's set apart for your use alone. But you wouldn't use it if it wasn't clean. So your toothbrush needs to be pure and clean. And then when you use it, it becomes holy. When it's sitting on the shelf in coals, it's clean, but it's not holy. When you buy it and you set it apart for yourself, it becomes clean and holy. Does that make sense? Okay. <clears throat> now, so how does unclean and clean and holy work then in the Bible, I'm glad you asked. Here we go. So I'm going to take questions specifically on this um, once I've explained it. Because if you can get your head around this, you're a really long way to understanding the book of Leviticus. So it's always best to start with God, this side. So God is holy. And anything that's closely associated with him or set apart for his good purposes 
is also holy. Everything else is common or unholy, unholy meaning not set apart for God's good purposes and pleasure. So there's two categories for everything and everyone, holy and common, holy and unholy, right? Within the common category, there's also two categories, clean and unclean. So everything is either holy or common, and everything that's common is either clean or unclean. Does that make sense so far? Okay. Um, the normal state was that people and things were common and clean, but pollution of all different kinds can make them unclean. Some things were unclean by definition and could never be cleansed, like some animals, like pigs, for example, and vultures for Israel were unclean and could never be made clean. <coughs> but usually that which was or had become unclean could be restored to normality, to being clean again by appropriate ritual, which you see on the top. <coughs> Similarly, only God is holy by definition, but certain things and people could be made holy as well, sanctified by appropriate rituals on the top. Conversely, wrong actions or contacts could desanctify or profane the holy. In general, sin, weakness and various abnormalities, down the bottom, profane the holy and pollute the clean to make it unholy and then unclean. In the opposite direction, it's primary, primarily in Leviticus, blood sacrifice that makes things, that cleanses things, makes them clean, and then makes them holy again. The one thing that must not be allowed to happen, and which so many of the Levitical rules were designed to prevent, was for the holy to come into contact with the unclean. The holy must never come into contact with the unclean. When that happens, it produces a kind of theological and spiritual short circuit and the shock could be fatal as Nadab and Abihu were the first but not the last to discover firsthand when they were killed. Okay, questions, clarifying questions on that. Anyone got any questions? It's really important you get a hear around this. Does it make, does it make sense to everyone? Yes. We're seeing about four people nod, which means 45 people have questions. No? Okay. Because so your question could be the question that eight other people have. All good? All right. We'll press on. Now, today we're mostly focusing on clean and unclean. And then later on, when we get to chapter 17 and 24, we're going to talk more about holiness. I'm going to talk about holiness, but I'm mostly focusing on clean, unclean, and how it applies to you today here in this hall in 2020 all right in chapters 11 to 14 ben's going to deal with 15 next week no i'm dealing with 15 next week i'm dealing with 15 next week ben's dealing with 15 right now in Harrington park in chapters 11 to 14 we have four types of things that are unclean and have the potential to make an israelite unclean as well as other objects if they come into contact with them now, I'm not going to cover them all in detail, and the reason is I don't think the nitty-gritty of skin diseases and food laws is necessary to understand what God's trying to teach us here today. There's unhelpful question. We had a question time last week, and 
almost invariably people ask me detailed questions about the food laws and the skin disease laws, and that's fine. Um, that's understandable, but it's not necessary to understand the big picture of what's going on. You'll have all sorts of questions. What kinds of skin diseases were they exactly? The nurses might ask this. Are we talking psoriasis and eczema, or are we talking herpes and leukoderma? I don't know. It doesn't really matter that much. The details and nitty-gritties aren't really important that much to get the big idea. Okay. So, clean and unclean animals. Eating an unclean animal makes you unclean. So, uncleanness can go into an Israelite through eating it and make them unclean. Um, it's important to remember that Israel being called out from the other nations to be God's special possession, to be holy. Chapter 11 ends like this. I'm the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I'm holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I'm holy. These are the regulations concerning animals, birds, every living thing that moves about in the water, every creature that moves along the ground. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. So the big, big idea behind the food laws is that Israel are to be set apart, they're to be obedient to God. Other nations can eat whatever they like, but they sit under God's judgment. Israel are to be different to be set apart they're not to associate with uncleanness just like the flamingo that looked a bit weird when he got messed up with the black play-doh so israel would be separate and set apart for god only eat what they've been told to eat as his chosen people just as god had limited his choice to the nation of israel so they're to limit their choice of what they eat to what god gave them now why those animals this is one of the Questions that you naturally have. Well, why did he choose those animals? The Bible's not super, super, uber clear as to why God chose those animals exactly. There's a couple of strong theories that I will present to you um, to kind of answer the question, try to answer the question, but it's not explicit in the text. Um, it seems that the animals that he's chosen, are animals that are kind of a bit more orderly in their movement, and a bit more, I suppose, human-like, you might say. Most of the animals he's chosen stand up, they don't crawl around on the ground, and they move around in herds and packs, like the fish with the fins and the scales tend to move in a school in an orderly fashion, rather than an octopus or something that scurries around on the rocks randomly. Um, cows and things move around in an orderly fashion in herds, rather than a fox that might run around and kind of, right, randomly. The other thing is none of them are predators. None of them eat meat. They're not associated with blood. They're not associated with death is the other thing that they have in common. So there's two strong reasons why he chose those animals, because God is a God of order and because he doesn't want them associated with death and blood, which is defiling, profaning. Okay? But the big idea is in order to be his chosen people, they've just got to do what he tells them to do and eat what he's told them to eat. Um, if they don't, they defile themselves and they render them useless to him. Ritual cleanness from the kitchen to the sanctuary 
was meant to symbolise God's greater requirement for moral integrity, social justice and covenant loyalty. They were doing this out of honour to God. Now, what about us? Food laws no longer exist for us. Food laws don't exist for Christians. We are at liberty to eat whatever we like. But there might be times where we limit what we eat because of the company that we're in. For some people, even for some Christians, eating food of some kinds, possibly because of the religious background that that person's come out of, is a conscience issue. If the person you know has an issue about eating pork, well, when you have them over, don't serve them pork. If they've got an issue about eating meat, well, when you have them over, don't serve them meat. We can also abstain from eating. We have freedom to abstain from eating certain foods out of love for our neighbour. And Paul talks a lot about that in his letters. All right, that's the food laws. Questions? Get on the I'm here today button. Write your questions down and I'll get to you later. Childbirth. All right. Chapter 11 talks about uncleanness caused by not what goes in, but what comes out. And in this case, when you give birth, blood comes out. I'm not talking about the baby, I'm talking about the blood. The baby's beautiful. And giving birth is a wonderful blessing from God. But the fact that blood comes out means that the woman was unclean for a time. Let me talk about this briefly. I'll cover it in more detail next week when I look at chapter 15. Now, there's nothing inherently sinful about the animals that they weren't allowed to eat. There's nothing sinful about those animals. It's just God deemed they weren't to eat those animals. And there's certainly nothing inherently sinful about menstruation or about having ulcers, certainly not about giving birth. However, in the priestly thinking, discharges from the body particularly those involving blood, were a form of unwholeness. Were a form of unwholeness. As we know, blood means life. Often when the blood, come, the blood comes out accidentally, that's bad. So therefore, any loss of blood in any form, including menstruation and childbirth, was seen as a rupture of normal health, potentially a cause of death. That's how it was seen in a ceremonial sense, okay? Loss of blood, no matter why, equals potential death and therefore uncleanness and therefore unholiness for a time. Such discharges made a person temporarily unfit to participate in sanctuary worship in the presence of holy things and a holy God. Does that make sense? The unclean must never encounter the holy, so following childbirth, a period of time was prescribed the mother had to quarantine herself with the baby. And then once that time was up, she could come back together with the rest of the community. Now, I think for a, a new mum, it would be a tough gig that she can't see her family straight away, but not necessarily devastating that she couldn't see everyone straight away. There's kind of a time where there's no visitors for her and she gets a bit of peace and quiet for a while to get the hang of being a new mum. Once her time was up, she was pure and clean and she could once again make the ritual sacrifices and rejoin normal society. Thirdly, skin disease. This is the nicest skin disease picture I could find. I don't recommend you Google skin diseases on Google Images ever in your life. 
Now, despite the length and detail of the chapter 13, it's quite long, there's only three things I really want to say that kind of sum it all up. So firstly, we can see that uncleanness can also be on an Israelite. On an Israelite. So uncleanness can go in, uncleanness can come out, and uncleanness can go on an Israelite. Um, so the skin, the second thing to notice is the skin disease represents death again. Any kind of sickness or disease is a symptom of the fall. It's a result of the fall. It's the curse of humanity. It's the reality that humanity has rebelled against God and we now live in a fallen world. Hence, skin disease cannot come into contact with a holy God. You can't come into God's presence if you've got a skin disease. Death and even signs of death cannot come into contact with holiness. Can't happen ever. Thirdly, look at the priest, if you read, the priest is again the mediator between Israel and God. It seemed that the priest needed to be a GP as well as a priest. If a skin disease occurred, you go see the priest, he gets checked out, he does a diagnosis of the skin disease, he, he knows all these skin diseases apparently. He checks it out, he has a look, he prescribes a spiritual treatment, washing or isolation or even temporary excommunication from the community in the case of leprosy. Lepers found themselves permanently excommunicated if they didn't heal. And chapter 14, 1 to 32, then details the rituals of sacrifice required to be made in order for a person who once had leprosy and now healed to rejoin society. There's this long-winded explanation of the ritual sacrifice that needs to happen to make the unclean clean again. That's chapter 14. It has to be carried out by the priests. It wasn't mean. I'm not trying to be harsh or anything like that. It's the spiritual reality, friends, that our fallenness must not come into contact with God's perfect holiness. Cannot happen, not ever. Can our fallenness come into contact with a holy God? That's what it's all about. God's desire is to dwell with his people, but in order for him to do that, we must be clean. And once clean, we must be made holy again. Fourthly, Mold, another great picture, do you like it? Even the dwelling in which we live must be clean if we are God's holy people. There must be no hint of the clean and certainly the holy coming into contact with that which is unclean and unholy. Can't happen, not ever. Okay? And again, the priest is a mediator. He's a priest, he's a GP, and he's a building inspector. So, if you've got mould in your house, you call the priest over your house. He comes over, he has a look, he says, hmm, you've got mould. Lock your house up for a week, don't go in. After a week, go in and have a look. If it's gone, sweet. If it's worse, remove that section of your house and take it out of town. It must be removed far away from the people. Replace that section of wall and then you're fine to go. If it happens again, come and get the priest again. He'll come and have a look and go, hmm, mould. Lock up your house for a week. When you open it again, if it's gone away, sweet. If it hasn't gone away again, demolish the entire house and take the whole house out of town. It's got to be removed from town because the unclean can't come into contact with that which is holy. can't happen, not ever. 
Right, that's pretty dramatic. God's desire is to dwell with his clean people in a clean world. The rituals of Leviticus sought to achieve that within the chosen nation of Israel. Revelation 21 looks forward to a day when that has been exploded out to all people from all nations dwelling with a holy God forever. But only the redemptive work of God in Christ would finally achieve God's desire for his whole creation when God will one day dwell with his people in the new heaven and the new earth. It's only the sacrificial and atoning work of our Lord Jesus upon the cross 2,000 years ago that can make unclean you and unclean me clean again. It's only through the work of the Holy Spirit who goes in that makes us holy, makes us set apart for God. God incarnate was willing to transcend his divinity and enter into our humanity for our sakes. The perfectly clean and holy one dwelt among, walked with, talked to, less than 1.5 metres apart without a mask on, talked to people of all kinds, talked to sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, ate with them as well. He was willing to do that. The holy, clean one ate with the unholy, unclean ones. Then Jesus did the unthinkable when he allowed himself to be arrested and beaten. Blood poured out of his flesh. Blood is unclean. Jesus was willing to do that. But not only did he bleed, he also died. Do you feel, do you understand the shocking collision of worlds when the perfectly clean and perfectly holy one died? Death came into immediate contact with the giver of life on the cross. Can't happen, not ever, but it did for you. And for me. We've seen time and again in the Garden of Eden, in Mount Sinai, throughout Leviticus, the Holy God can't come into contact with that which is unclean. Certainly not death, but at the cross, Jesus was willing to do that for us. The Father was willing to send his Son, and the Son was willing to face death to contradict an eternal and cosmic reality for our sakes. Jesus was willing to suffer and to bleed and to die for you to reverse what was unclean and make it clean again, that is us, through faith. And so we read John's first letter. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That which is normally unclean, blood, is purifying because it is Jesus' blood. And the wonderful reality is that the one who is willing to take on our sin and uncleanness to face our judgment in our place, to face death on our behalf, rose again 
to new, clean and holy life. Victorious, the conqueror of sin and death and even the devil himself. And as his people, we're the beneficiaries of God's wonderful grace and cleansing and purification to us through Jesus. For Israelites, the practice of ritual cleansing was just the norm. It was just what you do. Seeking to be clean wasn't a decision that you made. It was just what God's people did. Hey, what's Frank yelling about over there? Why has he got his face covered? He's yelling, unclean, unclean. Oh, okay, Frank's got a big sore on his bald head. Okay, so he's unclean. He needs to yell out. I get it. That makes sense. That's what you do. Oh, where's Diane going? She looks like she's heading out of town. Oh, Diane's got leprosy. Poor thing. She's got to leave town. That makes sense. That's just what you do. Hey, Jimmy, where are you going with all that rubble in your wheelbarrow? Mold, right? Right. You're taking your house out of town? Got it. That makes sense. That's just what you do as a person of God. If Israelites were that serious about being clean for God, how much more should Christians who have Jesus, who have the indwelling Holy Spirit, live clean and holy lives for him. It should never be the case that uncleanness goes in to a Christian. The Holy Spirit has gone in. Foods can no longer contaminate us as they did for the Israelites. Why would we choose to consume anything that is unclean, like dirty movies, dirty music, things that dishonour God. Why would we consume anything like that when we're Christians? We don't do that. It's not uncleanness that goes on to a Christian. It's the godly virtues of faith and hope and love. Why would we put on anything that is unclean, such as greed or materialism or sexual immorality and dishonour the giver of life? You just don't do that if you're a Christian. It should never be uncleanness that comes out of a Christian. Only the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Why would we allow anything unclean to ever come out? Like filthy language, unkindness, lies, gossip, slander or rage and so dishonour our Lord who bled and died for us. It's just not what you do when you're a Christian. Friends, if we as Christians are as serious about moral distinctiveness as Israel was about ritual cleanness, our salt and light will be more powerful out in the world. Think about that. If you commit to living a clean, holy life, your salt will be saltier, your light will shine brighter, your ability to share the gospel will be enhanced as people see Christ in you, in the way you live. Will you fail sometimes? Yes. Will I? Yes. Will uncleanness sometimes come out or go in? Yes, it will. Thanks be to God that we have forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. We need not feel guilt and shame. We only need to go to the cross and repent and know that we're forgiven for our sins. But if we're followers of Jesus, it's just the norm to live a holy life, to live for Jesus, isn't it?
Our world needs to hear the good news of the gospel, friends. And because of COVID, people are actually searching now more than ever. I've been meeting with a guy for the last three weeks who's never read the Bible in his life. We're reading the Bible and he's loving it and he's lapping it up. He's searching for meaning in his life at the in his 30s. It's brilliant. I'm loving it. Every minute. I'm going to pray and I'll finish there. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you for cleansing through Jesus' blood. We thank you that we are set apart as your holy people by the Holy Spirit. Lord, empower us to live holy lives for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.